Hello and welcome to another exciting and, you guessed it, jam-packed episode of Modern Day Philosophers. I am Danny Lobel, host of the show. And you, well, you know who you are. And today's show is brought to you by a brand new sponsor, HelloFresh. And I can't tell you how excited and enthusiastic I am about this sponsor. HelloFresh and HelloFresh.com is the website, is an unbelievable service. We're talking about a meal delivery service. They send you a kit and you make the meal, but they send you the highest quality ingredients and they give you step-by-step instructions on how to make the meal. And the entire experience is not only fun, healthy, but you wind up with a delicious meal and you feel very accomplished. The recipes are set up so that anybody can make these delicious and nutritious home-cooked meals in 30 minutes, whether you usually cook for yourself or not. Maybe you're not so comfortable making home-cooked meals. It doesn't matter. They make it simple and you wind up feeling like a top gourmet chef. HelloFresh sources the freshest ingredients, and I can attest to this because they sent me three to begin with as a trial, and I'm telling you, these ingredients were great. I was blown away by the freshness. I got three meals. I got a creamy penne. I got a halami cheese with vegetables, and I got pita bread with harissa sauce and vegetables, and it was unbelievable. I I wound up preparing them all. I felt like I was a five-star top chef gourmet <laughs> I'm telling you though, I did feel incredibly accomplished and the food was excellent. The meals were delicious. It couldn't have been easier and it was fun. Not only that, they measure the exact quantities of food you need so there's no food waste, which for me is a big deal because when I go shopping for groceries, I'm never exactly able to measure it properly. I always wind up with extra groceries and I have stuff going bad and I feel upset because I'm wasting food and I wasted money on buying stuff I don't need. And the vegetables that they sent me were way better than anything I get in my local supermarket. These were really, really good quality, like farmer's market quality vegetables that came in the mail. And I'm telling you, the meals were absolutely delicious. And they come out to less than $10 a meal, which is great because if you think about what you normally pay for a meal, even when you shop for everything in the supermarket, it's hard to get to less than $10 a meal and put together a quality meal for yourself. And this couldn't be easier. It shows up to your door. And all you got to do is is you take their step-by-step instructions that they give to you and you make an incredible gourmet meal for yourself. It's really, really a great service, and I'm so excited to have teamed up with HelloFresh because they are offering everybody in the audience, my audience, that's you, $30 off your first week of deliveries when you go to HelloFresh.com and use their offer code MDP30. Go to HelloFresh.com and put in promo code MDP30. I really enjoyed the meals from HelloFresh, and you will too. Go to HelloFresh.com, use promo code MDP30, and get $30 off your first week of deliveries. Do it today. And please, if you get a chance, send them a tweet. Send them an email. Say thank you. Thanks for supporting this show. Because I'm hoping that you love the show. And it's people like this that make the show possible by sponsoring it. And we hope to keep them on board. And not only that, it's a product that I'm really proud to bring to you. Because I'm telling you, the quality is top, top notch. Go and check them out. HelloFresh.com. Promo code MDP30 and get $30 off your first week of deliveries. Check it out today. All right. Our show is also brought to you by the wonderful Stand Up Records. As you know, I have a new album out on their label, which is Danny Lobel, The Nicest Boy in Barcelona. And I think you'll really love it. Go and check it out. And here's a quick word from Stand Up Records. Warning. Last year, over 40,000 Americans died in car-related accidents. Not a pleasant thought, is it? In fact, as thoughts go, it's downright depressing. 
Well, that's where we can help cheer you up. We're StandUpRecords.com, and we offer the finest in CDs, DVDs, downloads, and merchandise from the best comedians on Earth. Artists like Mark Maron, Maria Bamford, Eddie Pepitone, and Doug Stanhope. Available at fine record stores, Amazon.com, and the iTunes Music Store. That's StandUpRecords.com. Come on, listen to us while you're driving. Live dangerously. Stand Up Records, the brand you know, the brand you love, the brand that has two albums out from Danny LaBelle. Danny LaBelle, the nicest boy in Barcelona. Barcelona, and also Danny LaBelle, some kind of comedian. I made that musical for you. I hope you liked it. I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. I've been feeling really good since I got back from Edinburgh. I'm on on the ball and on my way. Doing things, writing things, tweeting a lot. I set up an Instagram account for Modern Day Philosophers. That's right. Only four years into it, and I got an Instagram account up and running. But it's pretty cool. I got quotes, philosophy quotes up on there. And photos of past guests, won't you please go check it out and follow us on Instagram. And of course, I'm at Danny Lobel on Twitter if you want to check out what I've been tweeting. All right, we're going to do an overhaul to the website soon, moderndayphilosophers.net. So look out for that, but not yet. Soon. I'll let you know. I didn't even tell you this. Why am I telling you what hasn't happened yet? I'll tell you what already has happened. What has happened is I got great reviews in Edinburgh, I'm living off that high, and I'm writing lots and lots of new jokes and excited about performing more than I have been in a really long time, staying positive, staying optimistic, helping my wife with her new business. She just launched a website for Jewish women called JewSMag.com. I encourage you to go and check it out, and she's going to be putting out a podcast where she talks to Jewish women. It is her passion project, and I'm really excited and proud of her, and I hope you like it. And... We are also brought to you today by a very, very special sponsor that you know I've talked about in the past, and I think I may even talk about them on this episode. Maybe not, but I'm talking about Centered Health, the rehab where I work in Malibu, California, which is a very special place, a very incredible place that helps so many people. Listen, are you under 18 years old and struggling with substance abuse, addiction, mental health or behavioral health disorders? If not you, then maybe somebody you know is. Unfortunately, it's fairly common. The real tragedy is that people don't even know where to go for the proper treatment that they desperately need. Well, now there's good news. There is a place that offers this help, and it does so with the highest level of evidence-based, comprehensive, individualized treatment programs for maximum healing. Located in beautiful Malibu, California, Centered Health is a rehab facility that truly cares. They offer an incredible variety of treatments and individualized care that is tailored to the unique nature and experience of each one of their clients. An in-house executive chef, a swimming pool, a tennis court, a library, a rec room, and more are available in this huge Malibu estate overlooking the Pacific Ocean. Their diverse team of experienced psychologists and psychiatrists Work round the clock and encourage clients to express their thoughts and feelings through daily journaling and embracing new options, experiences, and open-minded views. Their holistic approach provides many innovative therapy groups, including surfing, meditation, music, and my group, which is podcasting. That's right. I've been doing a group at Centered Health, doing some amazing and very meaningful work, talking just as I do with my guests on this show with the clients there and trying to help them based on my own experiences with addiction. 
Centered Health accepts most insurances, and it only takes six clients at a time, so every single kid is getting the most individualized care and attention that they deserve. Their number is 800-234-5599. That's 800-234-5599. And their website is centeredhealth.com. You can also email them for more information at info at centeredhealth.com. Do not put off getting the help that you or your loved one desperately needs, especially in this very crucial stage of life. Pick up the phone now and call 800-234-5599 and see what Centered Health can do to change your life forever today. I highly recommend it. And now, on to today's episode. Today, I spoke to someone named Rob Bell who is apparently a big deal, but I didn't know about him. My wife found out about him and turned me on to him. And and I said, as I mentioned in the episode, don't tell me anything about him. I wanted to be completely surprised, and I was surprised, and very pleasantly so. This guy is very bright and, and fun to talk to, and someone a little different than who I normally have on the show in that he's not a comedian. He is a preacher, a pastor, a preacher. Is that the same thing? I should have asked him. Anyway... He had a mega church, and now he is involved in the comedy world in that he does a show with Pete Holmes at the Largo and tours together with Pete Holmes, and you'll hear all about that in the interview that I do with him. What a fascinating guy. What an incredible story. It's even a little longer episode than normal today because I didn't want to cut it out. It was, it was too good. The, I had such a great time talking to him, and I hope you'll have a great time listening to him. And so... Without further ado, except for, of course, the intro song, I bring you my talk with the fantastic Rob Bell. Enjoy! Hello, and welcome to Modern Day Philosophers! Modern Day Philosophers! Having failed to pay attention in school, Danny Lobel, now older and wiser, will attempt to learn basic philosophy 101. Our young hero will be joined by today's top comedians, philosophers all their own. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Danny Lobel. I am sitting here with Rob Bell, and I am excited to have you on because my wife heard you on another podcast. And told me, oh, we got to get this guy Rob on. And I said, good. I don't want to know anything about him. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's more of a surprise that way. She never tells me to get a person on. You know, usually I'll I'll, I'll book the guest. But if she was excited to have you on, she's like, oh, he's got a great story. I said, I don't want to hear it. Because I want to hear it fresh. You're not a comedian, are you? Um, No. Okay. But (laughs) but you, you were on a comedy podcast when she heard you. Uh, yes. Yeah. So, so, so I let, was. let's start about what, what that can, how did that come to be? Um, that was with Jamie from, who was at the improv at that time. Jamie Flam. probably met Jamie, Pete Holmes and I toured for a while. We do a regular show at Largo together. Okay. So you, you toured with comedians. You're in the comedy world. Sure. I mean, it, it sounds like some, it. At, in some interesting twist a fate sort of way. Plenty of comedians uh, would love to play Largo. You're playing Largo. You're not even a comedian. So. You know, actually, I was in a band in college, and the band broke up, as college bands do, because mm-hmm. everybody has to get jobs. I was actually teaching water skiing the summer after college, and there was this religious, like a chapel service on mm-hmm. Sundays, and I volunteered to give the sermon at it. I don't know why. 
Uh-huh. And so I gave a sermon, but I didn't know sermons to me always raise the existential question, what's for lunch? You know, I mean, just boring. Yeah, yeah. Like just just counting ceiling tiles. So I didn't even know what I was doing, but I came up with some thoughts. I like literally opened the Bible randomly. Uh-huh. Like maybe I'll think of something. And when I got up to speak, I was like, oh, this is I'm here to reclaim the sermon as an art form. This is the original guerrilla theater. Uh-huh. You think about Martin Luther King, I have a dream. Nobody heard that and then said, uh, that guy was funnier last week. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it was an experience. Yeah. You were caught up in something. You think about the Hebrew prophets. Mm-hmm. They're speaking truth to power. This is the original Rage Against the Machine, Bernie Sanders. This is There's a widening gap between the rich and the poor. Those with their hands on the levers of power are manipulating the poor. They're causing oppression there. So I stumbled into this art form Mm -hmm. that has been hijacked in modern culture. I mean, at least I came up, uh, I was sort of raised within the Christian tradition where the sermon was like either just doctrine and dogma. This is how you beat people over the head with things Uh until I guess they believe them because they're supposed to or they're going to go to hell or whatever. Or this is how you get people to vote a certain way or this is how you build bigger buildings, Mm -hmm. edifice complex. And so... Like I went and I got a job in a church, and there's a whole thing that sort of happened there. So that, wait a minute, but, this is just all off of one uh, improv sermon. No, this is um, what happened when I gave this first sermon. I was like, oh, this is an art form. But you had no I'm ambitions my, to, to be a preacher or anything. You're, you're I was you're, quite quickly. It was out of that. In the world I came from, you'd go to seminary. Uh-huh. So I went to seminary. Where was that? And studied in uh, Pasadena. Okay. So I studied, I did a master's of divinity degree like you do, and then I got a job in a church, which was sort of in that, the, the world I was in, that's what you do. Does that make you a priest at that point? So then I became like a pastor. A pastor. It's called ordination. I'm Jewish. What's the difference between a priest and a pastor? Uh, generally, well, that's a great question. Generally, a priest would be in the more Catholic tradition. Pastors would be more Protestant tradition. Mm-hmm. It's all very similar. Um, at two, some level. Two names for the same job, essentially. At but, some level. And okay. I'm sure there are people hearing that going, no, it's totally different. But honestly, it's <laughs> who <are they? laughs> somebody who stands up front. Priests are generally in what's called like more of a high church tradition, which would be like robes and incense. And then there's sort of like that church around the corner from you, which is in an old warehouse, which is probably a bit more jeans and a T-shirt. So that's so to answer your question... Years and years later, 25 years later, I'm living here in Los Angeles, and well, I became friends with Pete Holmes. What was funny is how often things I had been doing over the years in my pursuit of this art form, other pastors weren't talking about the sermon like this. Mm-hmm. So I quite quickly was like, who are my peers? But I discovered that designers and artists and comedians would be like, Pete Holmes would be like, oh, yeah, comedians have a, la- have a term for that. I'd be like, no way. <laughs> <laughs> so um, how did you and Pete meet? Uh, Pete read one of my books and sent me an email and said, I want you to be my first non-comedian actor on my podcast. And we did a podcast. It went for like two and a half hours. And at the end, we were like, do you want to be friends? Mm-hmm. So then I started taking him surfing, which was hysterical. And then we were out in the water one day. And what was interesting is he came up through 
being a stand-up comedian, but often wanted to talk about depth and transcendence and the divine and what are we doing here? Like the big, he calls them the big itchy questions. Right, because he comes from a religious background. Yeah, also. so he was like doing comedy, but wanting to talk about the big things. And I came up in this world where you talk about the big things, but I was setting stuff on fire and covering the stage in dirt and <laughs> planting people in the audience. And it was almost like street theater or something that I was often doing. Wow. Um, so my stuff has had elements perhaps of stand up. So we were both like in these two different things, but, but dipping into each other's. And one time we were surfing, we were like, we should do a show where we just take this conversation and do it on stage with microphones. So we toured it around the country and then we started doing this regular thing at Largo. Wow. That's terrific. <laughs> I got to come and see that. It's fun. It's really fun. So how long have you been a pastor now? That's a great question because I worked in a church and then I was like, there's got to be some way to do this better. Was the church also in Pasadena? No, this was in Michigan. I got a job in Michigan. That's where I grew up. So I was at a church for a couple of years, but I was like, there's got to be some better way to do it because this is like a whole world. It's got its own language, its own symbols. Mm -hmm. And my world, I don't. Um, I don't relate to any of this. There's got to be some better way. Ooh, to any of what? To, to do this. That you um, when do you stand up? When do you sit down? Um, should I dress up? What, these are big words. I don't understand what they're saying. Um, I just noticed mm -hmm. how many people it was like, that just isn't the language. That, that isn't how we would talk about it. So I started a church from scratch when I was 28. From scratch? That sounds like you're, you're a cooking thing. <laughs> <laughs> I did. As I said that, I was like... From scratch, there's got to be a better way. <laughs> Here's how to make a church from scratch. <laughs> so we started a church, and it grew really, really big, really fast. It was uh -huh. kind of surreal. It feels like another lifetime. Where was this? In Michigan. Okay. But like a thousand people started coming. Two thousand, three thousand, five thousand. It was ten thousand people within a couple of years. So, so you were like a rock star pastor. It was kind of surreal. Did you were you broadcasting on TV? No, no, no. There was no one eight hundred big hair or anything. Uh. <laughs> so the original church that you were pastoring in Michigan, yeah, how many people attended that? That was huge. I was like uh, like an assistant pastor. I mean, that was like thousands of people. Okay, you yeah. were you were the assistant. Mm -hmm. So then, when you say you started a church from scratch, what does that mean? You, you literally in that world. I mean, this feels like another lifetime. This would have been 20 years ago. You literally say, hey, I'm going to leave. People call it planting a church. I'm going to mm -hmm. plant a church in their side of town. This guy let me use a warehouse for a dollar a year. Is it? It was totally. And somebody, somebody rented a sign to put out front to mm -hmm. say, like, when the services would be. And I was like, no. I made him get rid of the sign. I was like. Because my band days, it's got to be like punk rock. Like, you got to know somebody. It's yeah. got to be like, find it. You got to know how to find it. This is fascinating, <laughs> though. So your connection to this, aside from the fact that you did one sermon and you, you loved it, you got a thrill out of it, you never had religious ambitions before that? Not really. I, like, when I was growing up, my parents would take us to church. But I remember sitting there thinking... This is the big stuff. What are we doing here? Mm -hmm. What's it mean to be human? How right. do you figure out what your path is? Um, art, economics, politics, science. Like, this should be the gathering that's like, it should be electric. Because we're talking about the biggest stuff. And so you, you couldn't understand the, the, why, the disconnect. Why is it right. so boring? 
Yeah. And it seems like it takes more energy to make it boring mm-hmm. than to just, you have thousands of years of wisdom and commentary and midrash and you have, I remember thinking, this is, this is it, seriously? So I think probably sometimes it's like you look back in your life and you see these threads, you see things present early on that you didn't know what it was and then mm-hmm. later you realize, oh yeah, that was, um, so there's, there was some sense of like this seriously, this, why does this have to be so lame? Were you pretty connected at, when you were in the band? Were you, were you talking to God all the time then? I don't know if I cared that much because you're in college and you're just happy to be on your own. And mm-hmm. I was part of a group. There was a bunch of bands and there were some sculptors and improv comedians. And there was a whole group of us who were making stuff. And that was what was where the jo- that was where the action was to me. It's mm-hmm. just, you know, that like early we can make stuff. Yeah. Look at how weird that is. And look how cool. And there's this guy named Charlie who was doing like wall-sized paintings of eyeballs. And we were all like, dude, you know what I mean? There was just like I, that college. I always feel like that is in itself like a religious experience. Absolutely. Because, because anybody who's creating is is trying to do the same thing as God, right? Absolutely. You know, you're trying to be a creator. You Absolutely. Know? So if you know if you go off of the passage that man, I don't know if it's a passage or if it's just a quote, but just someone said it. But man is in the image of God. What is that from? That's from Genesis chapter one. So it is a passage. Yeah, the human beings, male and female, yeah, reflect the divine. In Kabbalah, they talk about the divine spark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So man is in the image of God. A creative person Absolutely. is like really trying to be in the image we of God. We can't help but make things. Right. You think about. People on the weekend who are like, I'm going to landscape my backyard. You think about somebody who needs things organized a particular way. It's think about things, people who are like color, texture, shape, form. Mm-hmm. Um, you think about an accountant who needs the columns to line up. Even things that people don't think are creative mm-hmm. are actually bringing structure, coherence, and form to things. And that's all a form of making the world. Yeah. And even to talk to, I know there are atheists that listen to this show and uh, they write in sometimes. And I try to, like, look at everything. I'm not an atheist. I'm a God believer. But I try to look at everything from their point of view, too, you know, just want to make sense out of the world from another mindset. Absolutely. If man created the concept of God, they created a concept in the image of man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right? we create our gods and then our gods create us. What's interesting, when you said that you have atheist listeners, the first thing, when I meet somebody who's very outspoken or very clear about being an atheist and I and we talk about the god they don't believe in, I generally don't believe in that god either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same so here. So oftentimes, and sometimes when people who are atheists will talk about the god, the image of god they were handed growing up, mm-hmm. uh, I often am struck with, man, the only healthy spiritual response is to be to an that atheist. image would be to be an atheist. Yeah. So I, I sometimes find the categories not as helpful because right. um, sometimes people are simply saying, I could never buy into the notion of that, and I couldn't either. Fantastic. And yeah. atheism sometimes simply means this is somebody who's committed to honestly thinking about these things, yeah. which I'll take any day over somebody who's just swallowing whatever doctrine or dogma was tossed their way without critically thinking about it. Yeah, I'm always fascinated by people who aren't thinking about it. Like, how are you not? This is like... Yes. You've been placed into the ultimate puzzle. <laughs> We're on a ball of debris hurtling through space at 67,000 miles an hour. The Earth at its equator is 
rotating at 1,000 miles an hour. Paris is going 600 miles an hour. In the Milky Way galaxy, which is 100,000 light years across, traveling through the universe at 600,000 miles yeah. an hour with somewhere between 100 and 200 billion stars. How, and so, <laughs> how are you not like, what? And some people are like, I just want to get my Burger King and call I was it a just going to say, I was just going to say, they changed the parking sign in front of my house. <laughs> okay, on a floating ball of debris. Right. But maybe that's a response to it all. Maybe it's overwhelming and mm-hmm. you're like, you know what? I, I can't. Right, right, and, right. And, and, you know, sometimes I look at philosophers and like these in, enormous bodies of work. That they just sat there and they deep thought, if you, you know, yeah, right. they deep thought all day and wrote it for a lifetime. And sometimes that's intimidating. You look at that and you're like, well, if they didn't figure it out, there's another guy who yeah. wrote a book that captured yeah, yeah, that yeah, like yeah. a year later. Yeah. And if you think, you think if they're, when you think about being itself, we're here. So there is some absolute dimension of the very nature of existence. We are here. Mm-hmm. And if, you think about it in terms of source, reality being itself flows from some sort of source. That source, in all of its infinity, you talking about it would naturally bring about all these paradoxes. There would be the known and the unknown. Mm-hmm. There would be that which you can comprehend and that which is always going to be beyond you. Right. Um, this is why these two polarities of fundamentalism don't sit well with us, because this is somebody who claims to know too much, and, somebody, and something within us goes, not enough mystery. Right. But then somebody who's like, you can't know anything. It's all, But I do know that rape is wrong, and human trafficking, we all can agree, dehumanizes people. Like, like there are certain things where we go, no, no, we can agree. Right, but there are always going to be people who say, you can agree, but that's just a societal construct that you've put together. Right, right. right? The, the person who says there are no absolutes. Right. To which you respond, except for that sentence you just said. <laughs> <laughs> so at some level, anytime people want to talk about God or the divine, mm-hmm. that discussion will have to have such tremendous humility and such capacity for great mystery and all at the same time. It's, it's like what you said a minute ago that I've talked about on the show so many times. People get so mad at the extremes. Like, you think you know anybody who has the arrogance to say, I'm the guy who knows for sure. <laughs> You know, <laughs> right, right, right. Is, is, is Be very is suspicious of such and, a person, and, and, and you're, you repel away from it. What's well, interesting, um, Moses? There's this great line in Exodus about Moses talking to the people, and the word that's used to describe the assembled group is witness. Mm-hmm. The Hebrew is adah, like a witnessing community. Which I love is you can witness to what you've experienced, mm-hmm. um, which to me is such a different set of discussions than who's right and who's wrong. But what have you seen? What have you tasted? What have you witnessed to? Well, I've noticed that when I forgive people who have wronged me and I let go of the bitterness, my life is better. Okay. Yeah. That's just such a better discussion than the standard everybody throwing stones at each other, arguing about who's right. When I was a kid, I was raised Orthodox Jewish. Oh, wow. And... I remember feeling, you know, I liked a lot of it, but I also remember feeling like all of the um, commandments were a burden. And then I moved away from it. Yeah. And uh, and then I met my wife, uh, and she wanted to convert to Judaism, and we had this huge, like, f- fight that went on for years. And ultimately, 
she won <laughs> and and she did convert and I, I and I tell people I feel like I converted back to Judaism because when she wanted to convert were you like what well, I'm trying to get out of this I, I was already, I'm trying like, to get out of this why would you want to come in I was like 11 and a half years away from I'm like I'm free I'm I'm I, yeah I, you know I'm yeah why would I want to put all that burden back on myself I got out of that that's all crazy I don't want to go back there you know uh of course, part of that was a lie, and I did, you know, I hadn't given up everything, and I did have connections to it, but is, you know, part of who I was. And and then she kept persisting and, like, doing all these things and going to classes, and I wouldn't go out of rebellion. For, you know, she <laughs> go learn whatever you want. I'm not, you know, and then ultimately I caved and went and, and remembered that I love a lot of it. But anyway, I eventually found that the second time around, the commandments, instead of seeming like a burden to me, seemed like life enhancers. Yes, like a path. Yeah, so it's like kind of like, what have you witnessed? What you said, what have you tasted? Like, the first time when it was sort of force-fed to yeah. me, I was like, I couldn't, quote-unquote, taste it, you know? I couldn't really experience it on my own because it was like, here, you take this and and, and now you're you're stuck with this. You have to do this, you know? But the second time around, I was like, oh, I want to do this. You know, this is interesting to me. This is better for me. Like, doing these things makes life richer. You know, there's an ancient tradition about this, that there are two sets of tablets for the Ten Commandments. And the rabbis talk about Moses receives the first tablets, but mm-hmm. then he smashes them. Yeah. And then he receives the second ones. And there's a whole thing about the tablets that you were handed as a child. You have to smash them. Wow. So that you can receive the second set of tablets. So there's even this whole uh, thing called the myth of transgression. Only when you've broken whatever you were handed and walked away are you able to enter into it with a fullness and joy. Wow, I'm like Moses. (laughs) (laughs) But it's so interesting that, um, or in uh, Zen they talk about it first, the river's a river and the mountain's a mountain. Mm -hmm. And then the river is no longer a river and the mountain is no longer a mountain. And then later... The river is a river again, and the mountain is a mountain again. That this walking away and deconstruction and smashing tablets is all the healthy part of a person's growth and development. Yeah. So oftentimes people are still stuck with the first tablets, like angry and mad. It's like you can you can leave. You don't have to do that. Yeah. And then maybe you'll come back, maybe you won't. Who knows? How is it the Buddhists got so hooked on rivers and mountains? Because every, <laughs> every you always hear stuff about, like, the river, the mountain. The, but everybody had rivers and mountains, and nobody seemed to appreciate them like a Buddhist. <laughs> well, you have that in the Psalms. You have the mountains trembling. But, mm-hmm. I, you know, I think you, your question is actually a great point. When you talk about issues of soul and spirit, when you talk about mystery, when you talk about depth and breadth, usually technical, precise language will fail you. You'll generally need images and metaphors Mm -hmm. and poetry, which is why sometimes when modern people talk about religion, it's just so awkward. It's like a bad song. You know what it Mm -hmm. is? Or or people trying to prove the existence of God can sometimes feel like you you just like sucked all the life right out of it with your nine... Points. Well, this sort of um, takes us back to how you got into the game. Yeah, right? yeah. But I think why do a lot of traditions talk about rivers and mountains? Because when you're talking about the immensity of the human experience at a soul, heart, emotion, spirit level, generally you look around at what's the biggest thing, what's flowing, mm-hmm. what's huge, 
those are usually the images you end up with. Yeah. People say things like, it's like my heart caved in. That's a fairly strong sentence. And yet that's only, it's only way to get at sometimes how it feels. Just sort of bringing the huge natural phenomenons into them. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) But nobody ever says like, you know, my heart is pouring like a waterfall. Do they? You just did. I think I just did. (laughs) I mean, I feel like there's a lot more we could tap into here. (laughs) 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 My love for you is growing like an evergreen. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) I'll let you use that later. It's It's all they had back then, I suppose, to go off, you know. Nobody was like, you know, the the river flows and the skyscraper continues to be built. It doesn't have the same power, does it? (laughs) You also think about the ancient world. You didn't have Google Earth. Uh You'd never seen a picture of Earth from space. You didn't have satellite imagery. You may not have ever been more than 10 or 20 miles from home at most. And like you had flash floods, you had no warning. Mm -hmm. You had... Obviously, like animals were not, we didn't have domesticated dogs with sweaters. Yeah. Just life itself. You had way higher infant mortality. You had your relatives didn't go to a a nursing home for 25 years end of their life. They probably just laid down in the corner of the tent. Yeah. So life and death, your brother wasn't born at St. Jude's. Your brother, probably your mom was like, you're going to need to leave the tent for a day. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. So all of the most primal experiences of life yeah. you saw and it was way more terrifying so so sometimes like this like you said the skyscraper sort of loses its poetic power maybe because like, it's yeah, man-made and not yeah. god-made right we're like right? Eh. yeah right don't compare this to something i can do yeah that's exactly it's funny when you said nursing home it's such a strange name for it isn't it like uh it seems like a place where old people would go to breastfeed <laughs> I don't know why that never occurred to me till this minute, but <laughs> I'm gonna leave this interview being like that nursing thing. That's a good one. That's a bit. That's the birth of a bit right there. It could be. <laughs> I often feel that when I'm doing the podcast, I'm like, oh, that could be something, and then it's over, and I forget it. <laughs> and then I'm like, you know, one day I gotta mine through all these and find out all the things I could have done. There's like a whole with. hour of material in your podcast. There, there probably is. Yeah. Yeah. So, what was your childhood like? I have a sister and a brother, so there were three of us. Um, Are you the middle child? I was the oldest. Okay, me too. When I was five in 1975, my dad bought a small farm in the suburbs. So picture 10 acres of land, Mm -hmm. seven acres of fields, and three acres of lawn and orchard. Wow, you really made a specific image in my head. There we go. (laughs) Okay. But like picture neighborhoods surrounding this 10 acres. So there would be like houses all the same size and the same size lots that backed up to our fields. And so starting when I was five, there were seven buildings on the property. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had like a tractor and like we baled hay, but then went to soccer practice. It was a hay farm? There were seven acres of alfalfa. Yeah. And, were there uh, animals on the farm? Just dogs and cats, 17 cats uh-huh. and a dog. Um, and no, my parents were my parents were very intellectually curious. So there were always books being passed around. Dinner was always like everybody telling stories. My dad was a federal district judge. Mm-hmm. 
At that point, he would have been a district judge. Then he ran for circuit court. And I remember that campaign was 1978. So he ran for office. So I would campaign. I would follow him around when he campaigned. Mm -hmm. And then in 1987, the president appointed him a federal district judge. Wow. Which is like Supreme Court, Circuit Court of Appeals, federal district are the three federal So he um, must have been federal a, courts. a good judge. Yeah. So so that was like a... Is it tough? So that's like way? drug cartels yeah. and um, massive Ponzi schemes involving tens of millions of dollars and murder trials. And he would do trials and then come home. He was home for dinner every night. Is it tough to have a dad who's actually a judge like every dad right, right, right. Is, raised by a judge yeah he um he's like a he has we always would joke he has like the force he's like the presence of 10 men he's like a larger than life sort of character mm-hmm. so an example would be he's driving this well, i'm trying to think what year this happened he's driving down the road and a car ahead of him there's an accident and a car flips over and slides on its side off the road he would immediately pull over and run over and climb up. So now the underside of the car is exposed. Mm-hmm. He would climbed up the underside, climbed on top, opens the door and reaches in and pulls all the people out. That's this is like a very him. specific example. Did this happen? Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen him like do stuff. For example, no, this I've could seen him. Yeah. I've seen him okay. do, st- he's just, or like he would, when he was camp, this, I have distinct memories of when I was eight, mm-hmm. him running for office, he'd shake 200 hands at an event and remember the names yeah, he was just he's he's just something. Uh-huh. He's but um, so that was that was like, uh, I remember him. He would like give me book like hey, you might write you might like this. I remember he would cut out articles from the Wall Street Journal when I was in high school. I think you might you'd, you'd really like this. So it was just that mm-hmm. was the environment was that you, you're thinking and you're asking questions and somebody comes over for dinner and you're interested in their work and what are they thinking? And mm-hmm. uh, if they're visiting from out of town, what's it like where you live? And that's just how it was. Did you have a good relationship with them growing yeah. up? And yeah. Yeah. And they were very supportive and yeah, it was good. What, he, was he a judgy dad of you guys? Was he? Um, he was a strong presence who definitely had a sense of how things should be. He had experienced a extraordinary amount of trauma and loss growing up. So I think he had, when he was eight, his uncle picked him up at his house. He had a younger brother and said, I need to take you somewhere. And his cousin, who was the same age was in the backseat. My dad said, where are we going? And his cousin said, you don't know, your dad died. And they took him to the funeral home. It turns out he had cancer, which no one had told him. And at the funeral home, he was told, you will not cry or be sad because we're happy because your dad is in heaven. Mm-hmm. And if you question this, you are doubting the sovereignty of God. So, and then when he was in high school, his brother, who was two years younger than him, was like he and his brother against the world. His brother died in a freak accident. And when he went to the funeral home, they said, you will not be sad. How did he feel about religion after that? That's a great question. I don't, because growing up, he was like, faith was very important to him. And um, you probably either walk away forever or you, faith is what gets you through something like that. But it's such a harsh um, thing to do to a kid in these situations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I wonder. I'll tell must... you what it did to him. Yeah. 
something in him, and I've thought about this a lot, especially recently, something within him in that unspeakable suffering, something within him decided someday I'm going to have the family I never had. Someday I'm I'm going to be the dad that I never had. So, and I don't know, I don't know how you get through something like that, but something within him was like, I'm going to break this cycle and do something different. Did he raise you guys with the same so, level of harshness? That no, was- no, no. That's what, that's what was so interesting is his joy over being a dad and having a family was so visceral. Like he, like he loved, he loved being a dad. He still does. Um, mm-hmm. And to me, it was such an, it only clicked for me a couple of years ago. Oh, that's right. When you experience great suffering, trauma, tragedy, loss, betrayal, it breaks you and you can become bitter or something new. This question arises, like what could be created out of even this? Do you think you became a more empathetic judge as a result of that or less? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, He would often, in front of him, would come young men who would be on charges for this or that. And he would tell us... He said that very biblically, by the way. Oh, this (laughs) or that? (laughs) In front of him would come young men. He he would often talk about... Yeah, today this young guy came in front of me. He was he was up in front of me for this charge, that charge, whatever. Mm-hmm. And in his defense, he started going on about he, how he never had his father. And he would often stop the trial or the sentencing or whatever. And he was legendary for talking from the bench very directly towards people who said, but I didn't have a father. And he would say, neither did I. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, so it seems like it made him less empathetic. No, I, no, his sense of like you, you can make it, you can survive, you can. And then he started pioneering. He was working on some programs for people who had just gotten out of jail to help get them mentors, to help get them. Because his whole he over the years, especially, began to be like, there's there's a system here, and if we could help people when they get out of prison and give them the support and mentoring and wisdom they need. So uh, he was involved in all sorts of interesting, okay. like sort of pilot programs of how do you break these cycles and help people who come from generations of incarceration um, see that they can actually break those cycles and do something new and interesting. So, so when he would say, "I don't have a dad," he was saying it to relate to them. Yeah, yeah, no, no, he not was, to use he it was, against them. No, 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 right, 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 right. Um, so that that was what my house and my mom, um, very very smart lady. So they were. Did she work? She was like mom. She was on every sort of in board uh-huh. and school project. And uh, yeah, she was right there. Yeah. That's yeah. what it was like. Those boards are always very funny to me, though. <laughs> I was just talking about this the other day, about how my my mom was part of something when we were kids called the Women's League, which sounds like it should be mm-hmm. a bunch of superheroes. But superheroes, it's, right. It's really just a bunch of women who show up for lunches. <laughs> My mom was less the she was the socialite thing that interested her. What interested her was what's the interesting idea that we could actually make happen. Mm-hmm. That's always been her. Yeah, the whole world runs on these luncheons, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you grow up? Uh, New York. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. 
Queens and then Long Island, mostly in Long Island. But I uh, and now you're here. Yeah, and now I'm here. <laughs> and it, remember, you said that a few minutes ago, but you were you were referring to life. You know, now you're here. I feel like I need to talk about it. <laughs> and now you're here. But you, you know, wherever you are, there's a reason that you're there. Right? Yep. You can go to a DMV, and you can see somebody there, and say, uh, "What are you doing here?" And if they don't know, they're crazy, right? <laughs> I just thought I'd stop in. I don't know why I'm here. I don't, I don't care. <laughs> That's funny. I like it here. Do you, you like it here in L.A.? Oh, my God. I love it. Yeah. I love it. By but, the way, I'm, my son um, is 16. We're going to the DMV next few weeks. Don't tell him why. <laughs> yeah. We, well, we will be there for a very specific reason. Let him ponder. <laughs> I, I, I think I have a, a, an idea. 16 is learner's permit? Is that yes. Kind of, is that terrifying? No. We have an 18-year-old son, too. Okay. And he, he drives, no problem. Was that scary when, when your first son started driving on his own? That's when you, I think you really have to have a lot of faith in God. You're like, all um, right. This well. kid, um, my older son is so on it and responsible mm-hmm. that... Um, he's actually with him. It was like, oh, he'll be fine. Okay. And yeah, he was fine. Yeah, was I good. can only relate to my dad's panic with us. <laughs> so yeah, just, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But um, my sixteen-year-old will. I mean, they learned to drive in L.A. So that's a little. I've always like, hey, you'll be able, anywhere. Will be easy after this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is this is the big time. This is the yes. big leagues of driving. <laughs> yes. So. You had, you know, this this rock star church that you started from scratch in Michigan, where you know you had to know someone to get in, like a you ran it like a nightclub or something. No, it was I, I meant you didn't have to know someone. You just had to like I the the bro, the marketing sort yeah. of. It was like a cool. I meant like no just word of mouth. That's yeah. what I meant by you know somebody is it, it. This should be like a just let it do its own thing. Let it be word of mouth. Don't like do big billboards and stuff. So so now you're doing these performance theater sermons. Yeah, I did the book of Leviticus for a year and a half. <laughs> I did. I, it's just funny to hear you say that. I know. Yeah. I know. It was I was like, oh, what would be the thing mm-hmm. that would either really sink it? You know yeah. what I mean? Like how, let's raise the stakes. So for a year and a half, I did Leviticus. So now you're the guy, right? You're you're, yeah. the, you're the spiritual leader to all these people. You're not the assistant pastor. You're the right, pastor. Right, 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 right. Was that heavy for you, having yeah. all that on your shoulders? Yeah, yeah. And I had no idea. I had no idea what was coming, like what that would bring with it. What was coming? Uh, that quite qu- what formed quite quickly was an institution. So then mm-hmm. you have you need people like so so like an example would be right away i was like we should give when people give offerings we should give a big chunk of the offerings away let's give it to let's give it to microfinance let's give it to hiv aids programs let's give it to earthquake relief let's give the money away Mm -hmm. so then well then we need some people who can head that up and who know about this kind of thing so then you start hiring staff Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden there's like a payroll and then you're at like 10 people, 20 people, 30 people. And then you're like, well, we should organize something for kids. Okay, so now there's like, at one point there were 900 volunteers working with kids. Wow. And then it outgrew the building that guy let us use for a dollar a year. And somebody donated a church, I mean, a a mall for the church to meet in. 
like a loser mall, like a mall that nobody was going to anymore. Yeah. So we took over like an old mall and like uh, the end store, you know, the big department stores at the uh-huh. end took out all the walls and that was the main meeting room and built the stage where the fountain used to be. Were there moments where you'd pack and be like, oh my God, everybody's faith, everybody's hopes are riding on me. <laughs> I didn't take myself that seriously, but there is a weight. So an example would be after a service, I would just stand on front to talk to people. And this first person is like, I got evicted from my house. I got a, can you help me? Second person, I've been suicidal. They'd pull up their sleeve and have cut marks. Third person, uh, my wife left me this week. Fourth person, it was like that. So how do you process all that? Uh, it took, oh man, it was so, once again, it feels like a lifetime ago. Um, I had to go places in my own, so you're like 28, 29, 30, the heat, it was so intense. I had to like start going to therapy because it was like, oh, the only way to even survive this, let alone do good work, I'm going to have to go to all these places in myself. So I can't say yes to everything. There's too many things to do here. Um, I can't do every funeral. I can't do every wedding. So I'm going to have to look really good people in the eyes and say, I can't be at whatever the thing is you want me to be at. But that, if you're a firstborn people pleaser, that's death. That's mm-hmm. terrifying to feel like you're letting people down. Did it finally get easier? So, so then it was like, oh, I need to understand how to say no. I need to have boundaries. What are boundaries? You know, like this, all this is brand new. You didn't new have me. boundaries on the farm. Uh, <laughs> I just uh, so so all of these things I had to sort of learn. Like my wife Kristen and I had to learn all of this, like on the fly. Um, yeah, it was really, it was amazing. Did you have a pastor you would go to? Um, at every stage, there was somebody. There was like the village elder. There was somebody. Uh, every time there was like, oh my word, I don't know anything about X, whatever mm-hmm. it is. Somebody would come along who would help me. Um, it was amazing. So I, at every stage, there would be some, sometimes it was somebody in person. Um, there was a Dominican sister, like a nun, who helped me for a while. I would go to her. She was from Boston. Mm-hmm. She, Tell me, Rob. Um, and she would do like, I would go to her for spiritual direction. There was a Buddhist teacher. There was a, um, I started studying at a local synagogue in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, anything, any little bit, somebody could help me to, to manage it. It was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's what we did for a What was the effect on your marriage? for like, like 10 years. I mean, your attention's being pulled by everybody else. Um, at one point, my wife stopped coming to the church. Because <laughs> yeah. she was like, okay, she's like, she's an introvert and she's she swims in the deep stream. So like cocktail party hour talk isn't mm-hmm. interesting to her. She like wants things of substance. So she'd be like, here's how it works, Rob. You're talking. I We had to do the service three times on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. She's like, so if I drive in and get a parking spot, which takes me a while. She's like, from the car to a seat to hear you do your thing. 10 different people are going to plug into me and want something. 
and then 10 more people on the way out. And I'm going to sit down in this room with three and a half thousand people and hear that. That just isn't, that isn't my thing. <laughs> so that, did that hurt that she stopped coming or? Uh, no, it was such a surreal environment to be that young and to have that many people looking to you that the two of us, it bonded us. And it was like, whatever you need to figure this out. Mm -hmm. And she started going down the street to this center where they were teaching classic like mysticism, like my Meister Eckhart. And she started studying mysticism and was like, oh my word, this, these are my people. Mm -hmm. This is a tradition I can resonate with. So yeah, it all worked because we were like, yeah, wherever you need to go, whatever you need to help you grow and help you stay alive, be more alive than ever. How did your faith hold up throughout all of it? At first, you're just so excited. Oh, my word, people are coming. Like classic early stage of life, people notice my work. People Especially like my jokes, being whatever from it is. A, a failed band. You're like, <laughs> <laughs> can I just slip a song in while you're all here? Right, 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 right. So there's a part of like, for all of us in your like 20s and 30s, wait, wait, am I any good? Does mm -hmm. this work? All the early first half of life questions. Um, does this matter? Does anybody, hello, is this on? <laughs> um, and then I started asking questions about the whole thing. Like, like wait, what is this? Yeah. Like one morning I'm driving in and I'm thinking, okay, this whole Jesus tradition is about a guy rising from the dead. Come on. Seriously? Mm -hmm. And it was Easter Sunday. Yeah. So I was going in to give the sermon which is a like the Easter Sunday sermon to sort of argue the case for a guy rising from the dead. And I remember thinking, that is the weirdest story. Yeah. Like, what is this, like a courtroom? And I'm the, the lead lawyer today arguing a case. And then somehow people would, like I found, I started taking the whole thing apart. Um, and some people like in college, uh -huh. they take, they go on their, I went on my search as the pastor of a 10,000-person megachurch. Did you, did you ever have a, temp, a it temptation was to just get up there and be like, by the way, guys, it's all a fraud. Go home. Good night. Just, yeah, I, I had moments like about to go on stage like, this is the, what is this? Some of you people own companies. You're professors. You're going to like hear me just spout off about some stuff. Yeah. Like, what is this? Like I had in my first book, I wrote a whole chapter about one Sunday sitting in a storage closet and I can hear the room filling up for the next service. Mm -hmm. And I have the keys to my Volkswagen in my pocket. I can feel, I have my hand on the key in my pocket thinking, how far could I be by the time, it's... by the start of the next service? <laughs> like how many miles away could I get? Was because this, because, California. <laughs> <laughs> because this thing... I mean, lots of people I've talked to who've started businesses, you have all these ideas about what it could be and then you get into it and you're like, this is way different than I thought it would be. All of the luster, yeah. all of that sexy sheen, like, dude, you could, I'm going to be a comedian. I'm going to do sets. Right. I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to own a garden. I'm going to have a business. I'm going to have whatever. You get like, there's like this moment when you get through all the novelty and you're in it and you're like, oh, this is actually like... There are elements of this that are brutal, yeah, agonizing, and I and there were all these different pieces for me, yeah. So I, I went. It was tough. So you were overwhelmed. Tough. 
Yeah. And, and that's sort of, I sort of hit bottom. Like there's no point in doing it this way. If I'm even going to keep doing this, and Kristen and I had this running joke from Spinal Tap about how I could always just go sell shoes. Mm-hmm. You know, I, you're at 11. I think you look good at 11. Um, yeah. we, we had, I had this, I'll go do something else and I'll give sermons on the side because this isn't, this isn't what it what was cracked up to be. So I remember I decided to start going to therapy. I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to figure this stuff out. So I went to therapy and then I started telling the church I've been going to therapy. This is what I learned this week. I started mm-hmm. doing sermons about the interior life. About it was it was yeah. I'll never forget the first time. I was like, so I've been going to therapy. Therapy is for people who have stuff they need to work out. Therapy is for people who kind of kind of kind of jacked up. It's not for those of you who are like perfect. Yeah. <laughs> like I started doing all this <laughs> weird stuff on <laughs> So if like you like everything's perfect in your life and like your kids and your all your work and everything's totally but then none of this is gonna none of this is for you right but for those of you who are like what is this <laughs> here's what I learned this week <laughs> <laughs> did, did your therapist's office start getting booked out uh, yeah yeah and actually some people started it was like oh there's an interior life mm-hmm. there's a whole world that it's easy to completely avoid in the modern world. There's a whole world that all of us are carrying around, an ocean of questions and doubts and insecurities and fears and trauma from the past and anxieties. And you can, with enough Netflix, just slide across the surface of all that. Right. And for many of people, you go into that, it's so terrifying, better to just glide across the surface. And no people, and what I learned is that people are desperate to talk about all the things they don't have other spaces to talk about. That's what I learned is, oh, everybody wants to talk about this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I remember a a kajillionaire, like a multi, multi, hundreds of millionaire, times over millionaire. I remember he was a part of the church and his daughter uh, was in a clinic because of a pretty severe eating disorder. And I remember him telling me that, like, oh, all of a sudden your hundreds of millions of dollars aren't helping Mm -hmm. because you're just a dad. And every dad who's ever been concerned about one of his kids, you now know what they were talking about. So that's what just kept happening over and over again. So what was the moment where you walked away from it all? Um, One of the interesting things, that was in 2011, it became time to leave. And partly it became time to leave because the very nature of a religious... I was interested in what it does it mean to be human. Mm -hmm. What does it mean for all of us to be alive? This is for everybody. And the mark of any path or worldview or perspective is, is this good for everybody? So I was interested in uh, uh, building up one religion or building up one church wasn't what I was interested in. I was interested in what does it mean to be fully alive? That's a different set of questions. But you're still also walking away from all and, these people that... Yeah, yeah. You know. And um, so I was gradually like, wait, wait, wait. This isn't about getting people into a building. This isn't about getting more people into the temple. This is about announcing that the whole thing's a temple. All of life is a sacred, holy thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had been doing club tours, like a band would tour. So I had done mm-hmm. a couple tours 
I did one on quantum physics and Hebrews poetry. I had done, um, so I've been doing these like one man shows and stuff. And, I, and what was interesting to me is when I would go talk about spirituality, about the interior life, about the big questions in spaces that weren't conventionally thought of as religious, it had like this extra bang. Like when, like the th- thing I do at Largo, mm-hmm. um, it just, it, it like works at some level. A space that is unapologetically spiritual but hasn't been co-opted by a spiritual institution becomes a very interesting space. This is true for all performance, I feel. You know, yes. when I do comedy at a poetry night, yes, people appreciate it infinitely more. Yes. Because, because it's now more unique. Yes. Yeah. And it ha- somehow its edges... And, and, and its power are more apparent. Um, and uh, so I started like, okay, what is the next? At some level, I'm telling a story. Mm-hmm. And Kristen and I just kept, it happened actually very quickly. Well, where do people tell stories? And we had lived here when we were first married. And well, I mean, in, in America, New York and LA, we need to go to LA, don't we? And it was interesting is I started to some close friends. Hey, I, this, this season's over. I know it for sure. And I know it because of how many times I've met people who stayed too long at something mm-hmm. and always could tell you when they should have left. And when they didn't, how many things turned sort of sour when, in any season of life, when it's time to go and you don't go because it's safe or comfortable or you're afraid of what people will think. And my friends like our closest friends are like, you need to go. You need to go. How did you break it to everybody? Well, what's interesting is I told the leaders of the church, Mm -hmm. um, I need to keep going. Almost like there's been this long, slow evolution of my work and I need to keep going. And what I've been telling everybody in the church for whatever, 12 years is you have to keep going. And now I have to do the thing I've been telling everybody else to do. And that means we have to leave. Um, so everybody in the church got an email on a Thursday. Rob and Kristen are leaving us. They're moving to Los Angeles. This Sunday, he'll tell you more. Mm-hmm. So that Sunday, at the beginning of the services, I just walked on stage without saying a word. I just, by the time I got up these three steps onto the stage, the whole place was standing and cheering for like a five minute standing ovation. It was, and I was like, cheering that you're leaving. All they know is that I'm leaving. <laughs> and I was like, what? should that tell me something? Yeah. Um, but it was some sort of, yeah, yeah. You need you go push it, go farther. Yeah. It was some sort of in some sort of deep tribal. We, we get this. We did you did you hand it off to someone else? Actually, a good friend of mine became yeah. the main teacher. Yeah. The, what was his first day like? <laughs> Well, he had he had worked there on and off over the years. He's a very you would they love all, this dude. They all knew him. They knew him. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you were saying I'd love this dude. Why? Because because this guy, when he was probably twenty five, he was like, wait, 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 wait. The Bible, where does it come from? I want to understand it better. So he moved to Jerusalem mm-hmm. and started hiking through Israel on foot. So he would read the Bible and then be like, well, it says the valley of whatever. He would go find the valley. Yeah, that's the cool thing about the Bible. These and places are all there. And he would learn 
So he could tell you average annual rainfall in Jericho. He could tell you. So he started taking smaller groups of people and hiking all over. Be like, okay, let me give you an understanding of the political situation at that time. Mm-hmm. And he started doing these trips, like where he would take people to these sites, paint them a picture of what it was like, whatever, such and such years ago. Then he would open the Bible, that passage, he'd have somebody read a paragraph and everybody would just be like, are you kidding? You see what's going on here. Mm-hmm. You see why this is interesting. You see why this story has some particular resonance now. Brings it all to that, life, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he's a, yeah, his name is Kent Dobson. He's a pretty, he's a pretty amazing guy. So that's, that's the wild thing about the, about the Bible. When I went out, uh, I didn't tell you much of the story, but uh, my, my wife, when she converted, she and I both went to, to Jerusalem to study for a month. Oh, wow. And um, when I was there, and I'd been there before for vacations and I spent a year on a program and, in Israel, but I wasn't there learning, like, biblical things. Right. But being there and learning them and then seeing places. Yeah. It's mind-blowing. It's it's a trip because yeah. you're like, you know, if this whole thing is nonsense, they really did a great job weaving it into reality because these places are all here. And You know? Yes, and it raises questions about nonsense because somebody found this story compelling and had this need to tell it to people. And then generation after generation found this story meaningful and centering and grounding and inspiring. Mm-hmm. So that alone, that's interesting at just a basic human level. Right. Why has this story had such resonance with other human beings' stories for literally thousands of years? That's yeah, fascinating. And it's like a magical story, too, which is interesting because, like, if I told you, like, you know, I saw a dragon on La Cienega, <laughs> that, that would be, you know, pretty, a pretty fantastical tale, but nobody to back it up. And, uh, you know, in, in a few thousand years, is there still going to be La Cienega? Like... <laughs> But these places are all still there. And that's, yeah. that's ins- I mean, it's not like you go to these places and, and it's like, you know, and this place used to be the spot where, you know, Joseph was buried, but now it's a shopping mall, you know? Right. It's, it's like, oh, wait, there's still a tomb there? It's right, still right, going right. on? Right. This has been carried on since the story was written, like, for thousands of years? Yeah. It's mind-blowing. Right. People in America will line up for for hours to see the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia mm-hmm. and be in the same room as this cracked bell, which is 200 years old. <laughs> We're like, whoa, man, that is, is it really the, the Liberty Bell? Taking like, shots these at other stones, bells. <laughs> ah, <laughs> these stones over here, there's a long tradition that yeah. Abraham stepped on them. Yeah. So that tradition has been around... <laughs> That's a little different. It's funny that you chose a bell, you know. It is. Isn't that interesting? I know it's a corny joke because your name is Bell, but it, of all the things to criticize, it's a cracked bell. That's fantastic. The subconscious is wonderful, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> of all the things I could pick. Yeah. A cracked bell. Yeah. 
I, I, just, I had to call it out. You had to call it out. Yeah. Yeah. That one was just sitting there. Yeah. I, I would have been disappointed I, if you would have let that slide. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so so now you're here. <laughs> here We're here, are. right? Yeah, slaying uh, dragons on La Cienega. Yeah, we have a philosopher for you. The guy Alex picks out a philosopher who I discuss with the guest. Uh, yeah, and um, he chose for you uh, Richard Dawkins. What do you, what do you know about Richard Dawkins? It's a British biologist. Uh huh. Yep. I don't know much more about him than that, but I guess we'll about, we're about to learn. Okay. Uh, he says, what you have in common is because of Rob's book, Love Wins, What We Talk About When We Talk About God. The book Love Wins, What We Talk About When We Talk About God is the book that came after Love Wins. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we talk about when we talk about God, I talked about quantum physics and how the modern age, past three or 400 years, was amazing as this evolution in human history and thinking. You had the birth of the scientific revolution. So you had evidence, proof, labs, repeatability. And, and with this, we've built hospitals, airports, and put 10,000 songs in our pockets, mm-hmm. which is awesome. The flip side is what has happened for many people is the filter on what is true has been narrowed to, can you prove it? Um, but then when, when you talk to me about your love for your wife, proving it, it's not really the right categories. Mm-hmm. And so we're so sophisticated and we have all this amazing technology, but we've also in many ways been cut off from soul, from spirit, from that which doesn't fit through these narrow filters of evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, not all of life is lived in a lab. So in that book, I just t- talk through um, why, are peop- why do people love Burning Man? Why do engineers in Silicon Valley love Burning Man? Because it taps into a thing that's, in many ways, the modern world has shut off, which is wonder, mystery, worship, transcendence. So it's an argument so, um, to, to say, you know... I'm just trying to help people think through, uh, oh, this modern world has been working on you. Mm-hmm. And so when somebody spouts off, you're coming from a place. Mm-hmm. And this fantastic modern world has also cut you off from some things. And it may explain a number of things. So that's what that book's about. The book Love Wins is about heaven and hell. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, this whole idea of hell, it's, it's words only used like about 12 times in the Bible. What do you make of hell uh, in a nutshell? <laughs> hell in a nutshell. That would be a good name for a book. I think you can create all sorts of hell on earth right now through violence, oppression, betrayal, that we should think about heaven and hell as present states of being and that you have tremendous power through your decisions, through the way that you live in the world, to create hells left and right, or in some ways to make earth more and more the kind of place, tikkun olam, the heal and repair of the world. Do you, do you think Love there are these, these different places you can go, heaven and hell, when you die, like destinations? Well, in the ancient world, they had this three-tiered view of the universe. So people didn't have cameras. They hadn't been below the crust of the earth. So people had an understanding that, well, up there must be the heavens. Down there must be where bad things happen, and we're sort of in this middle. So part of it is helping people understand that even the questions of some other place Mm -hmm. are from a framework that we don't have anymore. Um, Do I think that you're given what you want? Yeah. And 
in this lifetime, some people choose isolation. They choose bitterness. Mm-hmm. Other people choose hope, joy, love. Um, we're all, in many ways, a mix. And I have no idea what happens when you die. I'm very suspicious of somebody who says they know what happens when we die. Yeah. But... Uh, it's it's always been odd to me. And I mean, I I wasn't raised with heaven and hell kind of thing. Yeah. As, as a Jew. But, right. But it's always been odd to me that people imagine physical destinations for a non-physical thing. Right, 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 right. That, um, and like when Jesus used... The word hell is pretty much only used by Jesus, and when he uses it, it's the Greek word Gehenna. And Ge means valley, and Hinna means Hinnom, the valley of Hinnom. And in the first century, the valley of Hinnom was the south side of the city of Jerusalem. It was the town dump. Nobody likes the south side. <laughs> right, the south side. It was the town dump. It's where they burn their garbage. Yeah. And so you had wild animals um, fighting over scraps of food, mm-hmm. and you had... So it was the place with the gnashing of teeth where the fire never goes out. Mm-hmm. So even so, this whole idea of a burning and eternal torment is been perpetuated often by like sort of a Christian world that it's not even in their texts. Like people made that stuff up. Right. It's, um, I blame the artists. <laughs> I really oh yeah, do. some of those. In the book, I talk about this painting that my grandmother had of like this like red swirling hot abyss and then there's like this walkway into this shiny gold it's Um, it's not helpful i really like you know we went to the vatican uh my wife and i and uh you look at all these amazing paintings and i'm an artist too i'm a painter and um it's interesting because art usually comes from a place of irreverence i think i mean you can you can have spiritual art and you can you you know you could be a spiritual person and and pour but there's always something in the artist that make that's like I want to mess with people yes, a little bit. Yes, exactly. We have to subvert something, or we're not doing our job. Right. So when the big art buyers were the church, which oh. is that's where the money was, I have to think that a lot of these artists were like, "All right, you want me to paint Christianity?" <laughs> <laughs> there's going to be a lot of like, you know, half naked woman goats. And a fire. <laughs> it's almost like the it's almost like the painter is going. I'm going to paint this horrific, naked goat woman as hell. But yeah. you, as a human being, are going to be like, actually, the hell. And they're going to believe. It actually, looks a little more interesting. Oh. The heaven often yeah. like the heaven is a very static, yeah. sort of polished. But I mean, lots of human beings are like, actually, the hell looks like it's where the action is. Yeah. You know what I mean? That looks like where there's the movement and the motion and the vibrancy. Everybody's just singing in heaven. If you go to any <laughs> art museum and look at, like, these paintings from early yeah. Christianity, a lot of them are pretty perverse. Yeah. And I'm sure. And, and you have to think, okay, yeah, that artist was definitely twisted. And and they <laughs> he was given an assignment. And he's like, all right, I'll, I'll you know, you those are the yeah. guidelines. Yeah. So there's no part where, you know, all right, I'm going for it. And and they're like, you know, I, I, I have to paint what you want me to paint fine, but I'm going to do it my way. And little did they know that they were planting images in the minds of humanity that would shape the way religion for would, forever. For a long time. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, you know, this, somebody's like, all right, I told you to paint uh, Jesus on the cross. But, you know, there, there's just like a ton of naked people around him and there's blood pouring down the whole thing. 
But I guess I never said not to. So here's your check. <laughs> uh, I have not heard that before. That is good. Walking through the Vatican, that it's like, oh, the artists messed every religion up for everybody. And you have a lot of interesting commentary over the years about, first off, if people aren't literate, then these images become the literature. Become incredibly powerful. Yeah. They become the communication mediums. And secondly, if you can convince people, A, that they're bad, sinful, wrong, depraved. Doesn't take much. And if you can convince them that any stepping out of line mm-hmm. could bring eternal torment to you, to them. Yeah. You can people you can get people to fall in line. So there's all of this political undercurrent. People will submit. And there's, um, you know, huge financial gain as exactly. well. Exactly. So you look at the first 300 years of church history, the dominant images were of the goodness of humanity. You reflect, you bear the image of the divine. You're a co-creator. Mm-hmm. And then it's when this revolutionary Jesus movement, which is to help the poor, sacrificial love, when it gets in bed with Constantine and Roman Empire, mm-hmm. how do you control people? How do you coerce people? How do you get the masses to submit? Uh, you tell them how hor- horrific and awful they are, that the goodness does not reside with them. Mm-hmm. They need a, a leader, a structure to direct them. Yeah. And what you see now yeah. is a lot of people reclaiming, wait, that was really, really bad, and reclaiming this divine image that every human being bears. Right. It took a long time for the Renaissance to come around, and it was it probably a little too late. It took a long time, yes. Yeah. A lot of dark images there for a long, Ton. long time. Yeah. Yeah. How did you, or did you wind up ever reconciling that? Uh, yeah, yeah. You, you already know the uh, question? Your question is about faith and being up front with a microphone, talking about big things, but doubting it and taking it all apart, right? Yeah, and that, that, drive, <laughs> <laughs> that drive where you're questioning Easter as you're on your way yeah, to Yeah, I began to think about, it forced me to begin to ask a whole bunch of different questions, a whole different set of questions. And so I remember making a resolution, I will only talk about things that I've seen, mm-hmm. that I have witnessed and experienced myself. So I, uh, generosity is a better way to be. And learning to forgive is a better way to be. Does that mean that you've discounted the Jesus story as reality and more no, so, taken it as fable? So I began, so I remember starting there. Like, let's just start there. Mm-hmm. Just say things. Don't spout off on anything that you don't have some actual experience with. That was like 101. And then I began to realize, and once again, this is, good man, this is 10, 15 years ago. I began to realize that everybody is following something. Everybody is on some sort of path. Sometimes they've cobbled together little bits and pieces. But this idea that some people are just, they're just living. No, everybody is following some sort of orienting path. Mm-hmm. Um, so I began to think of it in terms of, well, what's the best way to live and what's what's a path that gives me the most life? And I began to think then about my own tradition and the Jesus path in different ways. Oh, death and resurrection is how the universe 
works. You have the seasons, mm-hmm. everything dies in winter and then it springs to life unless you live in LA. And <laughs> oh, 300 million cells died in your body in the past hour, but your body produced 300 million new cells. So death and rebirth are intrinsic to the way you and I eat. And when we eat, we have to pull something from the earth. So mm-hmm. it's cut off from its life source, but its death gives us life. So death and rebirth are not new ideas. They're how it works. How important is this story literally? Right. So there was this community of people who, at the time of the Roman Empire, who was the largest global military superpower the world had ever seen, and there's lots and lots of evidence that the Romans would march into an area, say, submit to Caesar, acknowledge Caesar as Lord. And if you were like, bug off, we're Mm -hmm. doing fine without Caesar, Uh you would be considered uh, enemies of the state and many of you would be crucified. So the Romans had perfected this way to publicly put people in the most amount of pain possible. So at this time, and you have some really interesting historians writing about how brutal the Romans were and how, beginning with Julius Caesar, the emperors believed they were the son of God sent to earth to bring about a universal reign of peace and prosperity. And you have all this really, uh, like a Roman coin would have on it a little propaganda which said peace through victory, mm-hmm. which is peace happens basically because we killed everybody <laughs> who right. didn't agree with us. So at this time, a counter-empire insurgent movement gains traction, which insists that the world is not made better through violent, coercive military action. The world is made better through sacrificial love. Um, that's, that's compelling to me. And, and so um, you have these stories about these people who insisted that they had had ex- post-death experiences with Jesus. Now, mm-hmm. even in the Gospels themselves, his closest followers don't recognize him when they first see him. Mm-hmm. So anytime Christians are like, it was an actual bodily resurrection, it was the same. Well, then how come in the stories themselves, you know what I mean? Yeah. The people who are closest to him, like Mary, doesn't thinks he's a gardener. Mm-hmm. Which I don't know about you, but when you rise from the dead and your friends think you're the gardener, that's just discouraging. I've met a lot of Jesus gardeners. <laughs> I'm sure that's probably a, an old joke amongst Jesus people. How that, how that, how that plays out, mm-hmm. literally, um, it's easy to discount, hey, those kinds of things don't happen. But now you're in interesting territory, really. Um, it also com- sounds completely insane at times. So I just begin with, what a beautiful story about resistance to coercive powers and what a truth about how life works where you die to things you need to die to so that you can be born in new ways. So you found um, meaning in it in a way for you. Yeah, 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 yeah. And meaning that actually this is a pattern, this is a truth, this is a way of entering into how the world works. And this is an, and yeah, so, so my faith became much, much, much more grounded and centered and stronger, but in, in a completely new way. And that inclusion, this must be good for everybody, that everybody, everybody belongs, everybody is loved. There is a human family of brothers and sisters, that there is a human solidarity mm-hmm. that transcends, that trumps <laughs> to use this verb, that trumps any of the ways that we have cooked up to divide ourselves. Yeah. And that to me is a compelling story. It's worth talking about. 
All right. Well, that's a good answer. I thought. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, you know what I was thinking after we were talking about the painting part of things? Because going back to the idea of people being co-creators with God yes. and, and artists wanting to create, I think that almost the irreverence in making art is trying to make something different than God, even though it's impossible. Because if God is everything, then anything you make is part of everything. Mm-hmm. But if you're putting your own spin on it and 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 your ego, make, you know, if a human ego can make you feel like for a second, hey, you know, God made all that stuff, but I could create something a little different here. Maybe that in itself is the irreverence of art. Absolutely. And diversity of expression is as divine as it gets. So, like, take Genesis chapter 1. The, uh, this poem, which was probably edited together during the Babylonian exile, is about the energy that animates and sustains all of creation as it propels itself forward. So, like, the poet keeps talking about, and these came into being according to their kinds, and the trees were pleasing to the eye, mm-hmm. according to their kinds, according to their kinds. Animals, trees, frogs, birds, mountains, planets, according to their kinds. It's like the poet keeps insisting diversity is key to the whole thing. Difference, God gets off on difference, mm-hmm. is essentially without that. Uh, so when the biologist is going through and making very careful distinctions between all of these different species, that is, a, a, in, that is such a divine task. The celebration and joy of all the difference mm-hmm. is central to what it means to be human beings. So when an artist, and one of the artist's job is to, uh, there was this uh, artist who would take cellos, I think it was in Chicago, would take a uh, like a four by eight sheet of plywood, cover it in glue, and then smash a cello on it yeah. so that the pieces would get stuck yeah. in, in different fragments on the board and then would mount that. Um, and I remember this philosopher talking about about seeing this artist's work and being like, it's almost like the artist is asking, is this art? <laughs> yeah. um, and that's why you have to have these voices that are like, what it, is this art? Right. What is this? Is it, it, it speaks to you of the deeper truth. Um, so fascism is the refusal to acknowledge diversity. Um, and you think about how many oppressive movements were a failure Think about how many people get kicked out of their tribe because their tribe doesn't have any capacity for something different. Mm-hmm. And yet difference is what is sent as the engine of the whole thing. Yeah. So just putting a little different spin. If you if you, an Absolutely. artist is painting, uh, painting an iguana and one of the hands is a human hand, they're like, ha, ha, ha. Look at that. <laughs> yeah. Yes, of now course. It's, now it's more artistic than if I would have just replicated the iguana exactly, right? Absolutely. But, yeah, and different schools of... Art over, and what's interesting is how often, if you look at larger movements of art over the past couple thousands of years, at different times, different cultures valued conformity. Like you have realistic movements where it's like, how closely can that painting resemble how things really are? Mm -hmm. And then different movements valued how weird can you make it? And there's also some interesting in art theory we generally create that externally, which we are lacking at some level. So very chaotic cultures tend 
to create very beautiful art because the mm. art is speaking to them of what they most aspire to and oftentimes very rigid, oppressed, fascist cultures tend to create very dangerous art with lots of edges to it. Uh. Is if you have chaos in one, you want clarity and beauty in the other. If you have an overabundance of clarity to the point of like oppression, then you need the chaos. So interesting. And it explains why Hitler's paintings were all so mellow looking, you know, not non nonviolent or anything. Ah, uh, you know? very I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. They still weren't that great. <laughs> I feel like at this point, you know, after after rejecting his art may have caused the death of maybe the, the singular cause of the death of millions of people. At this point, there's no point to start complimenting him. <laughs> Some of it feels wrong to laugh about that. <laughs> Damage done, you know? There you go. <laughs> so, it's all the fault. It's not even. It's the fault of art critics, really. Art critics are the enemy of humanity. <laughs> if you look at it like that, though, you could say the Holocaust and everything was really the fault of art critics. You might be the first person in humanity to present this theory. You might want to keep it close to the chest for a while. <laughs> I don't know. I mean... want to keep that theory yourself. If I can make a compelling enough argument, maybe no one will ever criticize my work. You know how you're saying that, like, in your podcast you do bits. Maybe you go back and listen to them to get yeah. bits. Yeah. I think when you go back through and listen to them, this one, you'd be like, no, it's not really a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to Richard Dawkins for a minute. Let's shelf Hitler. Pick up Dawkins. Okay. <laughs> Richard Dawkins, Alex writes, what you have in common, because Rob's book, Love Wins, what we talk about when we talk about God, I picked a philosopher of God. Okay. Richard Dawkins, born Clinton Richard Dawkins. He dropped the first name. Was born March 26th, 1941. And by the way, I'm, I'm March 25th, not 1941, but we're only a day off. An English ethologist, evolutionary biologist, and author. He is an emeritus fellow of New College, Oxford, and was the University of Oxford's professor of public understanding of science from 1995 until 2008. And the only thing I really know about him is I know that he's an atheist because I've, I've seen him arguing. You ever, you ever watch these arguments um, uh, between like religious people and atheists? In, in no, the, I find them insanely boring. Really? Yeah. I went through a little phase where I liked them. I'd find them interesting. I've been told that there's like a rabbit hole on YouTube you can go down. Yeah, I've been there. <laughs> oh, you have? Yeah. You know Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi Lord... Oh, I've read Rabbi some of his Jonathan stuff. Sachs? Yeah. So I saw a video of him debating God with Richard Dawkins once. Dawkins came to prominence with his 1976 book, The Selfish Gene, which popularized the gene centered view of evolution and introduced the term meme. Oh, he's in, he's the one who introduced the term meme? Well, what, 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 hold on. Why do you find them so boring? Just because you've already been down that road on your own? Why need, why watch the match? Well, or? let's say you win, let's say you win that debate. We, it's a debate. Right. It exists in particular categories, categories of the mind, mm -hmm. logic, reason which are incredibly fundamental to being a human being, they're also subsets 
of a larger self. You have lots of dimensions to your being. What I find really interesting is general belief now is that the universe is about 13.8 billion years old. Mm -hmm. About the first three minutes of the universe, all you had was particles. So there was some sort of point, some singular compressed point of infinite density and stupendous fecundity, as the French would say. So you have somewhat consensus in the scientific community that 13.8 billion years ago, there was some sort of explosion, some sort of bang, some sort of release. Mm -hmm. And for the first three minutes, all you had were particles, subatomic particles, little pieces of energy. Somewhere around the three-minute mark, those particles began to bond with other particles, and that produced atoms. Then you have atoms that over the next couple of hundred thousand years began to bond with other atoms. And then you had the emergence of molecules, which were made of atoms. Atoms were made of particles. Mm -hmm. Then it takes about 9 billion years, those molecules. You have the birth of stars. You have all sorts of interesting interesting things happening. But about 9 billion mark, you have these molecules forming cells. You have the birth of 10 billion years, organic cellular life. Then... What, 13 billion years in, these cells begin to form systems that began to form life forms. Mm-hmm. And then somewhere in the 13th billion year, you have human beings that eventually emerge. So we are a relatively new phenomenon. Mm-hmm. The Earth is about 4.5 billion years. So if some, from the formation of the Earth to this moment, if you thought of it as a 24-hour day, we appeared at 11.59 and 59 seconds. Mm -hmm. So when people are like, man, I waited for Barbara forever. No, you didn't. (laughs) Okay. So here's what I think is interesting. Why, and this is from science, does the universe move towards greater complexity? And why has it been getting more complex for billions of years? Well, you could possibly argue it. It's not if you look at the Kardashians from the beginning. (laughs) And yet, well, we should get to consciousness in a second. That is an unbelievable joke. It's also fascinating that your sense of the Kardashian insanity, mm-hmm. your ability to reflect on Kardashian insanity is actually a fairly developed, complex ability of your consciousness to contemplate things. Mm-hmm. That is new in human history. So consciousness The ability to locate oneself outside of oneself. The ability to feel despair. Dinosaurs weren't saying things like, I just don't feel like my life has turned out like I want it to. These are new things. So why has the universe been increasing in complexity? And then why at the 13 billion year mark Mm -hmm. do these humans come along who then begin writing songs and poems about meaning, hope, despair, doubt, That's what's interesting to me. So when you meet a biologist who says, we are just a collection of our cells, Mm -hmm. we are are just synapses firing, then why 13 billion years into this thing? Really? Really? Mm -hmm. Um, so, So what scientific, what reductionist materialism does is it says, you are just a collection of your biology. And what of a lot of very famous biologists who are also atheists have popularized is you're just a function of all these different parts. And I don't know how you look at this story as it's been unfolding for 13 billion years, as the universe, according to science, has actually been moving forward. How do you look at this and be like, oh, yeah, right. I guess we are just a collection of our parts. Mm -hmm. There's nothing else going on here. 
That to me feels like the more naive position. No, there's nothing else going on here. It's all an accident. I agree. Um, And that's to me, now that's an interesting discussion. But just one person, and in my experience, a lot of times the really smart people when it comes to faith are raging fundamentalists. Mm -hmm. Why would I ever believe in a God who orders people to kill people? Well, I don't believe in that God either. And thousands of years ago, people thought those sort of things because that's how people thought in those times. It's Mm -hmm. like they're strict evolutionists until it comes to faith and then don't believe in evolution. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Back to uh, Dawkins. Here we have uh, his book, The Extended Phenotype. I think that's how you say that. 1982, he introduced into evolutionary biology the influential concept of the phenotype effects and a gene uh, effects of a gene are not necessarily limited to an organism's body, but can stretch far into the environment. In 2006, he founded the Richard Dawkins Foundation for Reason and Science. Uh, Dawkins is an atheist and well known for his criticism of creationism and intelligent design in Blind Watchmaker 1986. That sounds like a, like a thriller, blind watchmaker. Uh, he argues against the watchmaker analogy, an argument of, for the existence of a supernatural creator based upon the complexity of living organisms. Instead, he describes evolutionary processes as analogous to a blind watchmaker in that reproduction, mutation, and selection are unguided by any designer. The Good Delusion, 2006, Dawkins contends that a supernatural creator almost certainly does not exist and that religious faith is a delusion. He opposes the teaching of creationism in schools. Dawkins has been awarded many prestigious academic awards. He's been on radio, TV, internet. Okay. So that's a little bit about him. What what came up while I was reading that? Uh First off, I don't see any conflict between faith and science. Mm-hmm. Any faith that's worth anything will celebrate and cheer on scientists because at, at one level, the greatest scientists are generally the people filled with the most awe. And the exploration of how things are the way they are and why they work the way they are mm-hmm. is ultimately fascinating. So... uh Yes, to me, if you're a person of faith, one of the first things you do is you think that science is fantastic. Um, Creationism, as you just read it, I think generally is the term people use to refer to a movement that reads the Genesis poem literally and says the earth was created in a literal six days, which is, to me, an abuse of the Bible. It's Mm -hmm. the people who say they're taking the Bible the most seriously, the most massacre it. Um, So I just begin with it's a poem, and it was probably first recorded during the Babylonian exile, and it's actually much more powerful than that. So that is absurd. And then there's also people who would say, how do you define a day in the Bible, right? Right, right. These are all... It actually misses the power of the poem, which had significant, raised significant questions then and now, and it just takes people back to... So that sort of thing, I... Yeah, right, that's that's not helpful. And Mm -hmm. teaching that in public schools probably isn't isn't helpful. What's interesting to me is why do we as human beings 
Why are we endlessly fascinated with that which transcends the five senses? Mm-hmm. Why, why do hope and spirit, why, why do these, why does love continue to captivate us? And these realities don't do so well in a lab. Mm-hmm. It's like you dissect them and they somehow lose something. If you ask me why I fell in love with my wife, and I say, well, she's five foot eight. She grew up in Arizona and she drove a Honda. You'd be like, that's kind of weird. <laughs> I get it. But if, <laughs> oh, oh man, Arizona and a Honda. But if you say, yeah. why'd you fall in love with your wife? And I say, because it's like when we got together, it's like I found my other half. So the one, the first one is factual. It's true. I can prove it. Mm-hmm. It's evidence. And yet when it comes to love, all that fact, truth, and evidence, they miss the point. Mm-hmm. It's like you're playing the wrong game. And that to me is the great crisis of the modern world is we have Google. We have algorithms for almost everything. And it's fantastic because we have all these amazing new technologies and luxuries and we can get medicine to people and we can get in metal tubes and fly in the sky. Fantastic. But what we're all trying to do is get over the loss of somebody we love who died. Like I have three kids. How do you stay cool and just let your kids find their path? Mm-hmm. And that doesn't, that, that's a different set of language. That's a different set of categories. I wonder what drives somebody like this to write so many books about something they don't believe in. Well, it's interesting. A friend of mine, Peter Rollins, is this brilliant philosopher from Ireland, and he was on somebody's podcast who's written, they'd written 10 books about proving faith or mm-hmm. something. Trying to, And this person said, so you're saying to me, Pete, that it's okay to doubt. And Pete says to the person, it's okay to doubt. You're full of doubt. Why else would you have written 10 books trying to prove faith? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's always a much more interesting thing to me. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, the question that you asked earlier, which I think is a great question, why do I find the YouTube debates boring? Because mm-hmm. this guy's on stage with a microphone arguing for something. That's not interesting. To me, I want to have dinner afterwards and find out, why this matters to you. Yeah. And what is it about your story and what you've seen that gives you this kind of passion? That's interesting to me. And it's fascinating to me how many militant anti-faith people talk about growing up in a really twisted, barbaric, often abusive faith environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you feel a lot of them are lashing out at, well, I, I, I've just encountered this a number of times. I don't want to make a, right, a right, blanket right. thing, but I, I just always think it's interesting to find out how, what people have seen. Cause oftentimes you've seen things and you're responding to those things. I am. So, 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 so hang on then. I'll ask you your own question. What is it in your life that yeah. you think has given you this incredible passion towards faith? Uh, I had probably fear of nothingness, some sense that there is this mystery 
this intoxicating mystery at the heart of everything. And I didn't want to miss it. I didn't want to, I didn't want to miss it. That there was a joy that animates the whole thing. And I didn't want to miss it. I wonder if uh, I don't want to miss out. <laughs> Richard Dawkins has fear of somethingness then. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're arguing for something out of fear of nothing. He's arguing for nothing, maybe out of fear of something. Oh, that's pretty good. That is pretty good. I mean, I have lots of friends who would say very straightforward they were raised with very overbearing authority structures. Mm-hmm. So anything evolving spirit sounds like it's just another overbearing authority structure commands, rules, I'm out. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think image is like a feast, a celebration, dance are just much more helpful images. You're invited to a feast. We all are. Not the Last Supper one though, right? (laughs) Maybe one that goes a little better. Um, You have the mystics talking about a dance, that the creation at its core is a dance. It is a Trinitarian dance that everybody is, in, you are invited. And so when you move in love when generosity and service, when you make good art that mm-hmm. helps other people, that you are at some level entering into a dance. Got to learn how to dance. Yeah, there's a, even an interesting word. Uh, some of their church fathers use this word perichoresis, which is a Greek word. Peri means around, and choresis is where we get the word choreography. Mm-hmm. So they talked about the divine perichoresis the divine dance and that when you give, when you stand up for injustice, when you stand in solidarity with the poor, when you serve, when you're generous, you are entering into a a perichoresis that is as wide as the universe itself, which I think is a compelling image. It's a nice image. Sure. Yeah. You know, when we just talked about the last supper for a second, something that should have been obvious to me my whole life just hit me. But I guess because, you know, I wasn't raised with uh, too much Christianity. Yeah, sure. I guess that's why they give prisoners a last meal, right? It's a, well, I mean, in, in the Jewish tradition, every table is an altar. So that uh, the meal is your, your daily experience of the sacred. So one of the ways you honor a human being is you give them one more experience. The Last Supper, of course, was a Passover Seder. Mm-hmm talking about liberation from Egypt. so That's a very long dinner. That's a long dinner celebrating one of the most powerful ideas ever, which is liberation forever enslaves you. So Jesus is at this meal with his closest followers. They're remembering a time when their people are liberated from what enslaved them. That's pretty sweet. That's that's, that's a beautiful stuff right there. And then he's about to be enslaved... Yeah, and you like could argue next morning, he, right? is, he is standing up against an oppressive system that's going to label him an enemy of the state and execute him, and that he is enacting a new kind of liberation from violence. He does not retaliate as a way of saying there's a new way to be human, there's a better way to be human. Did you ever feel like you like you were Jesus when you had all these followers? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that was never a problem. No, I mean not, I not like you were the... literally Jesus, but did you ever feel like, <laughs> hey, I feel I feel like I you know, I can relate to this guy like more than more than ever before. <laughs> well, you have to be um there's no way I'm going to answer that question in a straightforward way. I do think it's interesting in the story that the religious establishment want to kill him. 
and the lepers, the women, the Samaritans, all the outcasts want to hear more. So I, from, from when I started out, I was like, apparently if the religious establishment wants to kill you and everybody who feels kicked to the edges by the system wants to hear more, then you're on the right track. Nice. All right, cool. <laughs> so here's a summary on Richard Dawkins that Alex wrote. Uh, Dawkins takes aim at several tenets of religion. The existence of God, uh, if true, is a scientific fact about the universe and must adhere to the scrutiny we apply to science. When people claim evidence for God, they point to the complexity of nature and say it must have been designed. Natural selection is so precise that its end product mimics design. People say God must exist because all cultures have religion. The pervasiveness of religion is due to humanity looking for meaning in random acts. This is then taught to children who pass it on. People say we need religion to be moral. Empathy is a product of natural selection. As people who can feel for each other have a higher chance of surviving. Society continuously moves towards liberalism, which makes interpretation of religious texts more kind. Morality does not come from the Bible, but rather our moral progress informs how the Bible is read. As society progresses, religious people ignore parts of the text that do not correlate with their cultural values. An atheist and a believer can have equally moral and fulfilling lives. Some have called it issues of ultimate concern. Some have called it that of which nothing greater can be conceived. Um, some call it source, spirit, the force. Mm -hmm. with a tip of the hat to Obi-Wan Kenobi, human beings have been deeply fascinated and compelled with what is the ground that we're standing on? What is the thing from which it flows? Um, what is that of that we can imagine nothing bigger, greater, more infinite? And that discussion will never go away. It will mm -hmm. never go away. And that we are like meaning factories we're desperate to somehow make meaning of these few years we get on this floating ball of debris hurtling through space. Mm -hmm. And we make meaning of it through science, through art, through relationships, through having kids, through falling in love. Um, it's all like one giant search and exploration. So are lots of religious systems warped and missing the point? Can people who don't believe in any sort of divine be more? Of course, of course, of course. Yeah, of course. That's like 101. Obvious. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Now, what is this? Going back to our original question. Yeah. And where is it headed? And adaptation, selection, extinction of survival. Yes, that's all. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, evolution in terms of consciousness, in terms as a mechanism for understanding how we are. How, yeah, great. Fine. Okay. So what is this? And And... Uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel, love Heschel, said, I didn't ask for success, I asked for wonder. And that's actually what everybody wants. Is everybody wants a big house and money and fame and whatever, but no, you know, you want wonder and awe. You want to wake up in the morning with a sense of wonder and awe. Mm -hmm. And whether you're a biologist or an author or you're really smart or you're just trying to pay some bills, what you want is to wake up in the morning with a sense of wonder and awe about your own existence. 
That's what's interesting to me. And that's why you see so many movies where the person gets super rich, but they're miserable walking around their mansion. Absolutely. Think of how many stories we tell are about the recovery of wonder and awe. So you can be the most brilliant scientist ever, but if all of your knowledge hasn't led you to, wow, then at some level it feels like what? You missed the Come boat. on, Annie, you can be the smartest theologian, religious scholar, most righteous, moral, whatever person. And if you don't have, wow, then you your thing didn't give you the thing that is actually what's at the heart of being human. You know what's really interesting to, about this to me is that it seems like he's saying that humanity is picking and choosing the parts of the Bible that speak to them and the stuff that seems barbaric they're getting rid of. Well, and it almost seems like he's upset about that. Like, <laughs> Well, hum- the Bible reflects evolving human consciousness. In the Bible itself, you have people... So, for example, all those violent passages, mm-hmm. those were edited together in Babylon. Like all those, those, like the passages that somebody like this would point to in the Old Testament about the violent, barbaric passages, they were edited together during the Babylonian exile. Well, what had happened? Oh, these people had been violently overthrown and hauled away miles from home. But you could say, okay, he's arguing, um, you know, people say the, the, the Bible is written by God. And <laughs> it's written by people. In real places at real times. But, but people also argue that the Bible is written by God. And maybe, he, maybe he's arguing against those people. Uh, maybe. He is pointing out that you have to begin with its human origins. You have to begin with real people writing in real places at real times. So when they tell violent stories, they're telling violent stories to say, look at how stupid all this violence is. Mm-hmm. Quentin Tiartino does not think that violence is the answer to every problem. Sometimes the violence in his movies is his way of going, do you realize how ridiculous his violence is? So maybe he's responding to like the Bible saying, you do this, and if people take that as the word of God, then that's dangerous. He is absolutely pointing out something that needs to be pointed out that makes the world worse. Absolutely. Of course. But once again, for me, that's 101. Duh. Yeah. People have been using their sacred texts to perpetuate all sorts of violence for thousands of years. Not a new criticism. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. What's interesting is why is the whole thing seem to be moving forward? A critique of the violent use of a religious text is from somebody who now looks back on that and says, that's crazy. Why? You know what I mean? Why have they moved forward? That's what's interesting. Right. So what he said, you know, moving towards liberalism. So yes, yeah, well, that's one way to put it. But that's to me. Now, that's an interesting discussion. Mm-hmm. Moving is the to me moving. <laughs> right. What is at work in human history that we would all sense something moving? Yeah. And he says our moral progress informs how the Bible is read. So how is that moral progress progressing within people who believe in the Bible. Or in culture as a whole. If moral progress is going on, why? <laughs> I mean, he's, he's not saying that people are morally <laughs> regressing with the Bible. He's still saying they're morally progressing and then reinterpreting. Yes. So I guess he's saying, you know, 
You, you don't need the Bible for this. If there are different systems in which to reach enlightenment, why criticize one over another? Anyway, all right, we have a we have a paragraph here. Okay. Uh, I always ask the guests to read. Will you? Uh, would you kindly read this paragraph here? The only reason you try to be good is for God's approval. That's not morality. That's sucking up. <laughs> uh, what does it say? The atheist view of life is affirming, but never being tainted with wishful thinking or the self-pity of those who feel that life owes them something. There is something infantile in the presumption that somebody has a responsibility to give your life meaning. Life is as meaningful as we choose to make it. Oh, this is a paragraph from... From Richard Dawkins. Oh, got it, got yeah. it, got it. Yeah, this is, all, this is all juvenile adolescent religion. You know what I mean? This is all rooted in a very, very early, primitive, naive view that there's some old man in the sky. Mm-hmm that's sort of wagging a finger at you, waiting for you to do bad, and if you would just please. So for a lot of us, this would be, yeah, right, that's like early, early stages. But early in human that, history, early mm-hmm. in the life of religion, um, obviously present on the earth today, but we need to move beyond this sort of thinking. Um, but, I mean, he's an intellectual guy. He must know about where religion is at right now, too, right? Sure. And there are lots of expressions that that um, are reflective of this. So lots uh-huh. of people, when they talk about religion, they are talking about trying to please an old man in the sky. Uh-huh. This just isn't sort of how I see it. So it's not an interesting critique. And it's been a critique for a long time. And that's why oftentimes when atheists talk about the God they don't believe in, I don't believe in that God either, is right. um, that's the beauty of how the whole thing is moving forward is we're leaving behind. And the beautiful thing is when lots of people begin to leave behind unhelpful images. I mean, I love how Jesus talks about loving your neighbor. As -hmm. simple as he summarizes law and the prophets, love your neighbor as yourself. So you live from some place other than a horrible guilt and compulsion that if you don't, somebody's going to punish you in some horrific way. And you move to there is this great mystery at the heart of life and I can give my energies, I can give my best to the flourishing of others as we all flourish together. Right. That's just a much more compelling story to tell. The line at the end of this paragraph seems to apply to the most religious people and the most uh, atheist people. Life is as meaningful as we choose to make it. That could be within the construct of religion or without it, which I guess is his argument, but at the end of the day, it's still meaning-seeking behavior. Absolutely, absolutely, which goes back to the categories and the labels just aren't that interesting because now we're talking about meaning and how we explore it, how we cultivate it, how we make sense of things. Right. And that, once again, now that's not a religious discussion. It's still a, it's still a chase of meaning. Yes. All right. Yes, 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 which is why I keep talking about how some of it's boring is when people stay in the same old categories, mm-hmm. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to end up with the same old discussions. All right. Uh, to round off the show here, I have three quotes, and I always ask the guest to read the quotes and we discuss them. <laughs> okay, here we go. I have the paper in my hands. Uh, religion is not the root of all evil, for no one thing is the root of all anything. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. By the way, it's important to point out that institutions... Um, is government failed anybody? How about education? Mm-hmm. Are corporations pure to the bone? So what's interesting to me when you talk about religious institutions, institutions often let people down. Yeah, why single they out religious They often lose the plot, yeah. Ones. When humans gather together and systems of inefficiency get entrenched and systematized, 
they generally begin to lose their plot, whatever they are. Uh, okay, religion teaches us that it is a virtue, he says, to be satisfied with not understanding. Well, these are just blanket, I mean, I don't even know what, the, like to talk about religion, what do you mean? Um, with not understanding? Well, I think he's, he's critiquing what people say, blind faith. Truth right? is, par- there, there will always be paradox. There will always be knowing and not knowing. There will be always understanding and not understanding. There will always be the smallness of a human being and the largeness of a human being. There will always be the ways in which we all fall short and the ways in which, like Jesus says, we will do greater things. So I begin with truth will always take you into paradox. So when this says something like, well, everybody sh- should be sad satisfied with not understanding as if understanding that should live as if you'll ever understand everything um so i just live with yes seeking understanding is central to what it means to be human being mm-hmm. and we value that we also live with the reality of mystery and how we won't ever understand everything and that's what makes it so much fun and i think religion at its best never tells you not to to ask uh, I think, you know, I, I think there are certainly... Oh, 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 oh yeah, you know, right. Any religion that, that questions are central to the whole thing. Right. Questions when are central to the like, whole thing. they're like, oh, just believe it because believe it. Have faith. Oh, yeah, awful. That's not really, you know, that's yeah. just one person right. not, not wanting to get into it, you know? One more here. Humanity is pushing the limits of understanding. We may eventually discover that there are no limits, says Brother Dawkins. Um Humanity is pushing the limits of understanding. Uh, we've always been pushing the limits of our understanding. <laughs> we've always been pushing our limits. Yeah, and we'll keep doing that. That's what makes it so interesting. Mm-hmm. And science, all it's going to do is keep getting more interesting. And now you have lots of talk about life on other planets, other dimensions. String theorists are now talking about 11 dimensions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. That's what it means to be human. This is what <laughs> this is what it means to be human. Right. Yeah, we ask questions, we explore, we learn, we discover. This is what we do. Yeah. Yeah, this is not threatening. This doesn't somehow undermine faith or joy or love. This is how it works. Right. Yeah, I think it's funny because the uh, the idea of saying there are no limits really sounds like a God quote, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's limitless. Um, one of the things about these quotes is it's always hard to read somebody's quote without context. Yeah. That's why I hesitated a little on some of these. Yeah, it's true. And I should say that. I don't know what this person means. And like just to say the word religion, um, as if I just said, you know, humans. Uh, so these are all, to so just take a sentence. These are just and, a snippet. But right, you know, right, right. The, the basic, uh, the answer I have to that is just, you know, here's, here's a, you look at a painting and you don't always know what the context of the painting is either. Right. It's up to your interpretation. So right. whether or not we got the context right of the quote is irrelevant. It's just what thought. It's the, the joy of inspired. dancing around with it. Yeah. Yes. There we go. Thanks. Uh, thanks for <laughs> dancing with me, Rob. You're fantastic. Yeah. You ask great questions. You're a very funny man. Well, I enjoyed. I enjoyed asking them to you. And a very so. thoughtful. You're very thoughtful. I appreciate that. I appreciate it. I appreciate. I can see why people love your podcast. <laughs> Thank you. That's our episode for today. Thank you guys for tuning in. Thanks again to Rob Bell for being my guest. And thanks to our sponsors, of course, Stand Up Records, Centered Health, and our new sponsor that we have on board, HelloFresh. I've told you, go to their website, HelloFresh.com. 
Use promo code MDP30 and you'll get $30 off your first week of deliveries. You got to try this service. It's so cool. It's the future. It's now. You just have your meals show up in raw form to your door, bring them in the kitchen, become a chef, and you feel fantastic at the end. Really great meals, delicious meals, and a great sense of accomplishment when you make them. I'm telling you, they don't advertise the accomplishment, but I felt really accomplished, and I think you will too. Check out moderndayphilosophers.net. The new site's not up yet, but the old one still is, where you can make a donation, or you can always email me at thecomical at yahoo.com. I've been hearing from some of you, and it really feels great to hear from you, and I appreciate it. And I write back to everybody. And if I haven't written back to you, that means I didn't see your email. So please send me another one saying, hey, did you not see my email? Because it's possible. I always think, what about the person who emailed me, took the time to email me, and I didn't see it? What if it went to spam? It could happen. So if you haven't heard from me, it means I didn't see your email. Otherwise, I'm 100% accurate on replying to everybody's emails. 100% accurate. I don't know if that's the way to put it. But I'm on, I'm on it. I'm, I'm emailing back. I'm emailing back like a beast. I always want to be one of those people that could pull off the word beast. I know I can't. I'm a beast. Really? What do you mean you're a beast? You're ugly? No, I mean, I mean like in the, in the good way. Anyway. All right. Fine. Here we go. Go to iTunes and please leave five stars and a nice comment. It really helps. It really shows that people like the show. It makes the show show up in iTunes. It's very important. All the algorithms, schmalgorithms, and all that kind of stuff. And that's about it for me today. Check out the nicest boy in Barcelona album available at StandUpRecords.com. And stay tuned for some exciting news about a comic book I will be launching in the near future. So long, everybody, and take care of yourself. See you next time. Bye-bye.